Okay, Cinema Yugen, we're back, we're getting close to the end of the year and uh, I'm very happy to have back uh, my very good friend, very fine artist and one of the finest guitar players of my association, Sylvain Dupree sitting there in the dark, mate, how have you been? How have you been? It's been a while. I'm, I'm alright, it's good to see you, it's good to, uh, it's good to be back. Last time we spoke, you had your uh, wonderful book come out. How did Los Angeles fare once it went out into the world? Well, um, the book, I think it was well received. Um, I, you know, as these things go, I mean, it's it's an independent um, book and a, and a very small independent publisher. So there's only so much you can expect, I guess. Um, I, I was pleased that it was well received. It did a... We did a Kickstarter, which was really not my idea. It's how the, the publisher works. Right. And um, it, it sold well enough. I mean, it seemed to be taking off. We got some good reviews in um, Variety Weekly in LA, right. which I thought was pretty nice. Um, all in all, I don't think, but this, this is a, a phenomenon of our time. I think we, I, di I didn't get... Um, a whole lot of feedback beyond that because the book is is not in bookstores really it right, has to yeah. be ordered from the publisher's website those are the limits of working with these young publishers who don't really want to deal with uh, distribution right um they feel they can make more money by storing the book in their warehouse and wait for online orders which is probably makes sense to some people doesn't make sense to me because i'm old old school mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. Uh, um, so I, I like the book and I don't like the way it's distributed, uh, right. but I, I intend to change that when I have some time. Right. I've been right. busy with other stuff and I haven't really wanted to um, get a war on my hands with my publisher, but once my, my schedule is cleared a little bit, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll feel battle ready and uh, right. tackle that. I mean, ideally, it should have a, a better publisher, more more active publisher, I think. Mm. Whenever I think of you, I think of that uh, wonderful Carol Reed picture, the agony and the ecstasy, the uh, the sculptor who didn't want to paint. And uh, since we <laughs> spoke last, you've been um, you've been making an end. You've been out there actually uh, getting behind the camera and making a film. Tell us uh, tell us about your filmmaking adventures. So yeah, I I probably I, I'm probably the illustrator who doesn't want to illustrate. I had a conversation with. Um, a friend who's a, a director and a visual effects um, guy. He's very, very talented, a bit younger than me. And we were talking about this, and he was saying, I don't, I don't really believe that you don't enjoy drawing like right. you say you don't. And I said, well, it, it, it's not that I don't enjoy drawing. It's that I've, I've lost all capacity to draw for other people. Mm. You know, and a, a reasonable person would say, well, welcome to the world, idiot. Um, that's life, you know, you, you get mm. paid for doing work for other people. That's how it works. And I know it does, but I think um, I burnt out doing that. I really get no thrill out of um, having to live by other people's expectations of whatever it is they project that I'm, I should be doing for them. So it means I'm, I must get out of the business of selling work for hire. You know, if I'm ever to draw again f with some level of pleasure, it's going to have to be uh, 
hopefully um for yourself well you never draw for yourself what you're hoping to do is draw but for i mean for your own residence. for your own creative yeah purposes. i think it's uh, to, without getting too fanciful sure. i will say for me it's about being able to say my work is done you know i like it this way this is how I felt it and this is how it looks without having some guy coming by saying, well, I'm paying and I think there should be more color mm. or I'm paying. I think there should be more people in the background or I, I was hoping for a style. It's more like this and less like that. Mm. Um, you know, I got a call some time ago um, for some to do some work on a television series, which is an offshoot of Dune. Mm sisterhood of dune or something yes, like that yes. and uh, i asked the director what you know how do you know my work and he said well it's so and so you know we were talking about mobius and um he said oh you should call this guy sylvan and and i said um so what you're looking for really is some concept work that looks like mobius so there was kind of a, a beat and the guy said yeah i guess i guess that's kind of well you know you can do it in your style but yeah it's that kind of thing and, and um thankfully i didn't do the job you know right uh, but i'm not blaming anybody for seeking that sort of thing right. but i suppose it's reasonable to also say that after a certain amount of years of having to answer to people's expectations, whatever they are. It's not always a Mobius thing. Yeah. But whatever it is that people think they're getting, there's always an expectation. And I think some illustrators are made to spend their life working up to expectations. And I think some of us are not. We just don't have personalities where we get any pleasure out of uh, constantly trying to fulfill some other person's idea mm. um, while really the only pleasure there's left for me is to fulfill my own if that makes any sense yeah no, no totally totally I mean, so that's that's the drawing part on the um, uh, as an aside mm. i mean it's one thing to say you know you don't want to do something anymore um you know it's like the 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 prisoner or something you know when he says uh, i want to quit what are you going to do instead mm. <laughs> And um, so I, I've always meant to get into filmmaking. And um, when you start making your own films, certain things become apparent. One of the things that becomes apparent is why it was so hard to do it in the first place. Yes. Um, I mean, sure, you can, as, as Ridley Scott loves to tell people, you know, no more excuses, grab your iPhone and go around and, and shoot something. I mean, that's really funny. Because nobody's ever going to buy your film shot on an iPhone. <laughs> Nobody was, nobody's going to look at it, not even your next door neighbor. No. Uh, well, I mean, not if, unless it, you can. If Ridley Scott did can, it, maybe. You can fit, yeah. Not unless you can fit a $35,000, uh, you know, mm. Swiss sort of uh, lens on it or something, yes. you know like a Zeiss or something, and and insert your phone chip into a processor that certainly turns your so-called telephone into, you know, a red Alexa, which right. is what these guys do when they show you something they've shot on a supposed iPhone. Mm. So I think it's, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of a funny joke, but y you don't make a film with a telephone, and you make a film with a production, uh, a lot of insurance money, um, a, a, money to pay your the salaries of your crew 
you need to go and recce locations, including for a documentary, which is the category of film that I'm making. Mm. Yeah, you just don't show up. You actually lo find places where you're going to shoot your interviews, and uh, if you care at all about the visuals, and and you line things up, and it's extremely costly, and it takes a lot of energy, and. Um, I'm enjoying it because it's a new experience for me and it's also buying a key to freedom um, in a sense that I now get to do something that I really like, which I haven't done professionally, if I'm honest, you know, yeah. um, up, up to this time, I've been serving time, you know, what people used to call paying dues. You got to pay your dues, kid. Got to pay your dues. Yeah. Just pay some dues. And no then way. I realized after decades of paying dues, you're just paying dues. You're not you're not climbing up. You're not yeah. no doors open. Nobody wants to produce your projects. Um, I've tried for years and years. I almost got two films off the ground um, in the last 20 years. And one of them came very close. Um, but but no cigar, you know. So this happened very differently. This was um, an old fantasy of mine. Um, and I say fantasy because it's literally what it was. It's comical that, that this turns out to be the first, you know, full-length film that I'm making. Um, about 20 years ago, I, I was in a, in a taxi cab in Los Angeles. My car had broken down. And um, I was talking to the driver, who was kind of a hippie type, older, aging hippie. And we were talking music, jazz fusion. And we mentioned, one of us mentions the band Brand X. And the guy says to me, did you know the guitarist from Brand X drives a cab for this company? So that really took me for a ride. I, I, uh, I guess I hadn't thought about the economics of the music business that much. I'd always assumed that this band that I knew, because there's nothing extraordinary about the bands that I know. They're pretty accessible. Their albums are always being sold everywhere in the world. I had just been to Japan in the early 90s, and I remember being in an HMV in Tokyo and seeing Brand X albums among many other albums. So it was obvious to me that these were fairly well-known musicians who were, you know, obviously selling records, otherwise they wouldn't have been there. And yet this guy tells me that the guitarist, John Goodsall, is a driver, a cab driver in L.A., and at that moment, and this is about two decades ago, I thought, I bet you there's a, a subject here for a film about a band that I really like. Um, and that idea grew in the back of my mind. And, and the band at that time was defunct, more or less. Uh, the members were scattered and, you know, across the globe. And I didn't really know how to get in touch with any of them, really. Um, let alone how to make a film, because back in those days, um, the options uh, were pretty limited. You either made a bad video film with available video equipment, or you made a 35 millimeter film, even in the 90s. You didn't have the options you have today to shoot HD with accessible equipment, etc., etc. So it was out of the question. I just didn't know how I could possibly make a film like that. And um, so... It grew as a fantasy in my mind. I thought one day, you know, if I'm if I'm a famous director and I've got a lot of money, I'll be able to take a uh, sabbatical year and tell the studio I'm making this film about Brand X and you can't stop me. That was the the fantasy part, and I thought I thought it'll never happen. Well, strangely enough, um, in 2016, 
um, in the late fall, I was reading a Facebook post and the guys from Brand X were announcing that they were going back on the road. Um, and it, it, the thought was like um, trying to swallow a brick. It just didn't, my body couldn't process for a couple of weeks. And as soon as I processed it, I got on a plane, flew to New York where they were going to be touring and um, asked, you know, to meet their management and then the band sat down with them and said, I want to make a film. And my I name's, have no idea my name's Marty DeBerge. Hey, <laughs> yeah, I had no idea how I was going to do it. I had no money, um, which is common for me. You know, not having any money is pretty much a default state. And I, I, um, I just said, look, I, I want to make this. And they said, well, okay, why not? You know, they were a small band their whole lives. Now the guys were in the 70s, but nobody ever came up to them and said, let's make a movie. Um, they might have in the 70s when Phil Collins was drumming with them. Initially, the, the first well-known drummer of the band uh, was Phil Collins. And he, he stayed with them for about five, six years from 1975 to 1980. And when he when his career took off, as a solo artist, when he put out his first album, um, Face Value, um, he decided at that point that Brand X was no longer his cup of tea, playing jazz and, and playing fusion and, and doing all those drum chops. And he went into pop music full time. But prior to that, he'd been juggling with the idea of maybe leaving Genesis and, and committing to instrumental music full time. He, he was in between. He was, a, he was described as a workaholic who could have gone many different ways. So Brand X kind of died when, when he stopped drumming with them because I think, uh, first of all, they lost their management. The management was managing both Genesis and Phil Collins and Brand X, all three, all three um, items. So the management dumped the jazz band as soon as Phil Collins said, I'm done with them. And um, after that, their life just went into the wilderness. Um, as did the lives of many musicians passing from the 70s into a new era of music. And um, so that's how some of these guys ended up driving cabs and, and not really having big recording contracts anymore. And life changed for them, not necessarily for the better professionally. And they disappeared. And that's why I decided to call my film The Desert Years, because I thought, I wanted to make a film about um, musicians and artists, really, um, who have drifted away from, from a sort of um, active center of energy in their career. And they've drifted into this wilderness where suddenly fame has, has tapered off. And, and there's a kind of oblivion around them. And yet, you know, they continue to make music. They continue to pursue their art. Um, in the opposite direction of this superstar drummer who ended up being, you know, one of the, the world's two or three most famous pop stars. Sure, yeah. And I think there's something really beautiful about this, about mm. this world of extremes. Yeah. Um, but I was more interested in, in the down and out guys who were the passionate musicians who created all this music that I really loved. And I thought, well, how do I do this? How, how do I make a film for extreme fans or do I make a film about the people 
in the band. And I, I opted for the latter because I thought, after meeting them especially, these guys are so endearing. They're so, such lovely people. It almost doesn't matter what music they play. What matters to me is their story as, as aging musicians. And I decided to make the film from that perspective, to, to really make a film that isn't talking to fans particularly, although anybody who likes that kind of music will appreciate a lot of stuff that goes on in it. We recorded new music with them. We, we did all kinds of stuff. Um, so it's been an adventure that's uh, been ongoing pretty much since they regrouped. And filming has just pretty much wrapped. I'm still waiting to uh, catch a couple of music stars like Brian Eno and, and a couple more celebrities to do short interviews. Right, but yeah. the bulk of the film is finished. That's great. And after several years of, of hard work. And Odyssey. Uh, after the deaths of three musicians in the band who've, who've wow. died since I started. John so, Goodsall, the guitarist. So essentially you've, during, uh, you've, you've, ca you've captured some of them for for the last time that they'll be... It is. Uh, yep. Inadvertently, I ended up filming the sunset of a, of a band. Um, and this echoes a lot of themes that grew out of making the film The Desert Years, including a desert theme, where a lot of the picture, the interviews, are tied together by some footage of the, the main two musicians in the band, John Goodsall and Percy Jones, uh, under the stars in the desert, kind of talking about high points of their life and telling some of their stories. And this is a motif that repeats in the film throughout. Um, so it, it is, um, I, I did end up filming a sort of uh, ode to a band as they live their last, kind of their last outing. But what I'm really happy with is that I was able to record um, really great music with them um, and, and have a record on film, not just you know, not just a performance, but literally bring back all of the old members and put yes. him in the room. Yeah. All except Phil Collins, who can't drum. You know, he's completely paralyzed. But apart from him, um, so it's it's really a, a portrait, is the way I look at it. A, a portrait of the band with some liberties, a lot of artistic liberties in the way I present the musicians, their work, their history. We recreate a lot of history um from the band by asking the guys to uh, literally take up their roles again like the guitarist becomes a cab driver in the film in new york city and we we do some interview material in the cab with them and all that sort of thing yeah now I, I i'm 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 very very much looking forward to it i love uh i love music documentaries uh, i think that uh uh, Martin Scorsese's made some great ones. I love his uh, documentaries about Bob Dylan and um, uh, the Beatle. What's his name? George. Oh yeah. Um, living in a material well, world. And uh, Marty Scorsese was a, a huge influence. In fact, when I was a kid, I saw The Last Waltz. Yes. Which was the first music documentary I ever saw. Mm. And I didn't know any of the musicians um, on screen. I just went because it was a Scorsese film. I must have been like 15 years old or something. But what struck me about it and what I kept is how he filmed the picture. Um, and I really, all over the years, remembered that there was something very intimate about his camera. 
unlike other people, he didn't do a lot of multiple camera coverage of the stage. What he did is a lot of point of view yeah. coverage where you felt very close to the musicians, usually in one particular camera that would hold for a very long time. And I felt like I was sitting in a concert hall as opposed to being, you know, at the ceiling for one second and then the back of the hall and then the side Crowd and the back shot. of the stage. Yeah. So he was extremely focused, and I thought that's a great way to do it. Um, there's an also a great jazz movie called Jazz on a Summer's Day uh, from the Newport Festival in 1959. And again, it's like a single, a dual camera point of view, very intimate. So that was one of the, the big influences, and that is I thought, I want to film the band as if you're sitting in a concert, like fr front row and just be very very intimate did you see that more the more recent documentary about the band uh, robbie robertson about, what was it called uh, once were brothers not seen it oh, okay yeah that was a good one i mean it's 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 from unlike your film where uh it sounds like instead of a bunch of guys looking back at their career from a distance which is what it's kind of like. It's Robbie Robertson looking back at the band and the last waltz and their eventual oh, wow. breakup and and uh, the ill feelings between him and, and Levon, uh, you know, towards the end over who, home, yeah. you know, over who was, you know, the classic argument, who was the genius and, and who wasn't, you know. <laughs> I saw Levon Helm play in New York. Oh, God, this is about 25 years ago, maybe more. <laughs> um, yeah, that was that. that um, what I'm working with is uh, is an interesting set of challenges because the band obviously had some music stars. The band was uh, was a, a you know high selling uh, group. Yes, and Scorsese it was a star director, and and the Last Waltz has a ton of stars on stage. Obviously. Um, People have asked me if what I was doing was a little bit like the Buena Vista Social Club. And I would say, well, it would be um, were it not for the fact that there's no singing in my group because jazz musicians don't sing. Exactly. Yeah. I think I think one of the commercial advantages of Buena Vista Social Club, quite apart from the fact that it's a beautiful film and it's shot in Cuba, um, is the fact that, you know, as, as I would say crudely, uh, girls can shake their hips to it. And that always is a recipe for success. Whereas the singing and dancing and shaking of hips, you're sure to be selling tickets. Um, there's another film that uh, people ask me if I'm, I'm trying to live up to, and it's uh, Searching for Sugar Man. Mm. And it's also a, a really inspiring film. But again, Sixto Rodriguez, who just passed away, who mm. was uh, a beautiful singer, songwriter, composer, and again, the songs really bring with them an incredible amount of, of popular appeal, and they're beautiful songs. So again, it's a very different kind of music. Yes. My music is about um, guys who play something that is often unknown, which is this world of electronic jazz. Um, Brand X has a huge advantage over a lot of these bands, which is that they're extremely melodic probably because they're a British band, they're less stream of consciousness, run on chops, and more melody, uh, which is a very English approach to, to jazz. And because it's melody driven, it's very friendly music, but um, it's, it's not this weird, hostile, kind of dark, you know, impenetrable jazz. But still, 
It's not songs. It's not singing music. It's not shake your hips music. It's one of the reasons that I think it's better to make the film about the story of the musicians themselves, uh, because it's a human story. And that is one thing anybody can relate to is endearing people, sharing their craft and their passion. Um, and certainly as opposed to featuring the music of or so-and-so. You know? Yeah. Um, have you seen Julian Temple's films? He made a film about Joe Strummer and more recently about uh, the late uh, Shane McGowan called Croc of Gold. Have you seen either? Of oh, I have not seen that. I think I've heard of that. That's something That's something I should watch. Yeah, Julian Temple makes great films and they sound uh, sort of similar to what you're aiming for where he really, uh, it's, I mean, the music is there. I mean, because, I mean, it's The Clash and uh, The Clash and The right. Pogues. But the the music is there, and of course, for people who love the music, there's music there for them. But what's more interesting about his films is, like, it sounds uh, yours is also is more about the the people and their struggles behind the music. Well, that's what it is, and it's a theme that that speaks to me because even though I'm not a a musician from a, a, any sort of professional standpoint, um, my part of the experience that I've had with, with, you know, craft, um, deals with a lot of the same obsessions and frustrations. And I think those are creative human problems. They have to do with how can we pursue this, this particular area, knowing that what we do is worthwhile, while we're not making any money and we're not able to live from it. And, and how do you reconcile this aspect of your life? How do you how do you stay away from, from this prison of, of being commercially successful and selling your time for jingles or elevator music or yeah, commercials yeah. or yeah. like I've done, you know, I've done illustrative jingles my whole life. So it makes sense that I would make a film about musicians who are struggling to exist with our craft, despite the environment despite that jungle yeah speaking of as we were speaking about martin scorsese before that was um that was a uh, a theme he did a very uh, you've probably seen it he did um, a great series way back when um and it was called the history of american movies with martin scorsese oh yeah yeah i've watched them yeah, he talks yeah. it all the way through and there's one point that uh you can see it on youtube because they've made shorts of it where he talks about how he still does it at that time he still didn't know how to succeed as a director <laughs> how does it work well, do you make one for them and one for you or i'll tell you what that's my favorite part of his filmmaking is those years right yeah didn't know how to succeed you know i love mean streets and i love taxi driver i mean i think that's that's the scorsese i really love more than anything mm. um and and i and i love the last waltz you know those are the films in new york new york yeah uh, the, those were films i watched when i was little um, and I could feel the, the, the guy searching himself, you know, searching for his style. And I think that's what I like. And I always like that area of creativity. Um, of course, Scorsese is amongst the people who says, you know, you have to be absolutely insane to choose to be a filmmaker. Um, why would anybody put themselves to this kind of pain? And, and I can tell you, you know, four years or so into my project, which is self-finance mostly. I had one investor um, who, who put up, you know, a good size of the budget, uh, of the filming budget. 
but most of the money comes from me and um uh, it's it's a lot of hardship i mean it's no it's no joke you know paying all of your bills paying all of the people on time um trying not to screw anyone and trying not to cheat anybody uh, means skipping a lot of meals i'll tell you that and being late on your rent and all the rest um constantly and not just once but for four years straight you know because every penny i make goes into the film um i just um came back from morocco from uh, <laughs> i'm gonna say morocco from tunisia uh, where I did some solid days of filming in the desert there um, for a variety of gimmicks and shots and things that I'm doing in the film, including a, a piece of fiction that goes on in the movie, kind of threading through. And it was, um, it was like shooting a, a commercial. I mean, the, the endeavor was not only extremely expensive, but involved casting, um, having, you know, couple of hundred kilos of costumes made and shipped there uh, past the customs and dealing with all kinds of film logistics which had nothing to do with the documentary anymore um, and it was it's uh, it's exciting but it's hard it's really hard it's hard because there's no studio behind me paying there's nobody saying here's a check the advantage of that though is there's also nobody breathing down my back you know, I get a few angry emails from fans who are saying, when are we going to see this film? How long is it going to take? Because um, people have no understanding of how difficult it is to make a film. And they probably also think I'm making a film with my cell phone, which I'm not. You know, this is this is a film with, with a camera crew and a sound crew and sound mix and equipment rental and all the stuff you do when you're working with top-notch musicians. Um, so the, the, it's, it's incredibly expensive. You know, a day of filming is, is a minimum of three grand, basically. If you count hotels, flights, and food, and, and equipment rental, and insurance, and all that stuff, it's, it's a usual three grand a day. And I think I've filmed cumulatively for about 60 days so far. I, I think that some people uh, see these, uh, a lot of young people today doing all this uh, content creation i think that uh that's how it works further up so you just walk out and film it with your phone and uh, take it home and edit it and bingo yeah well um they think that and it depends on the content you know if you film that in, in at home in your backyard it's a lot cheaper i made the decision early on that i wasn't going to be the cinematographer on the film because i'm not a cinematographer one of the things I've learned spending all this time working on Hollywood movies is that there's a reason why there's one person per job. It's because there isn't enough time in your life to be excellent at so many jobs. If you want, <coughs> sorry, if you want excellence, your only choice is to hire people who are excellent. So that's extra salary, but that's how you, that's how you get the image. You know, that's how you go from having 50% usable footage to 98% usable footage, uh, more than usable, beautiful footage. Um, but you pay for it and you pay for good sound and you pay for great locations. You know, we rented these lofts in Brooklyn and um, sound studios in, in England and 
we shot in the desert in California and in Florida and in all kinds of places. But you pay for it. Um, and it's costly, and, and that's the cost of having a good-looking picture, which people will sit down and watch. Because I'm not making a movie about Dewey Lippa. You know, I can't ask her to do a dance move. Um, I don't have a pretty girl on screen, so I, I really have to work hard. I've got old men playing music, and I have to make it interesting. And I love the challenge of it. I don't doubt it will be interesting, because I, I can see what we're filming. Um, but the, it's very, very hard. Yeah, it's a, but I mean, it's a training experience. Yeah, uh, but I mean, the, the the struggle is the glory because I mean, it's um, it's because of people like yourself making uh, these films about subjects that are uh, important to yourself that uh, uh, is going to uh, eventually save us, uh, hopefully, from the uh, the tidal wave of sequels. I was reading an article yesterday. The most and all of the most anticipated films. Coming out in 24 are yeah. uh, sequels. Let's go through the list. Gladiator 2, Beetlejuice 2, Beverly Hills Cop 4. Um, and, the, and, you know, and the list goes on. We've already had another yeah. willing no, one. You're right. You're right. Well, that's Hollywood, though. I mean, I think the problem is the extremes. You know, there's always been um, this variety of, of good films and nonsense in show business. But I think uh, the extremes have parted like the ocean. And there's nothing in the middle anymore. So you either get that kind of Hollywood stuff you're talking about, which is sequels, yeah, name recognition, titles, logos, all that. And on the other hand, you get these um, indie films, which are not that independent, because what they're dependent upon now is identity filmmaking. It used to be that uh, reviewers, film critics, people who, who were interested in indie films would be passionate about the contents of the film. Is it well made? Is it well acted? Is Does it reveal talent? Is it does, is it about something? Do we care? Etc. So this was years ago. Nowadays, you read a review and it's all about who the filmmaker is. And um, is it a woman? Is it a man? Is it a they? Is it a she? Is it Are they black? Are there enough black women making movies? Now, these are all fascinating questions, but they have nothing to do with talent, content, value, cultural interest, passion, things to say. I mean, it has nothing whatsoever to do with that. The idea now is that the identity of the filmmaker is what people write about. And in my view, that doesn't guarantee any quality because the only guarantee is in talent. Yeah. Um, have you seen Napoleon? So if on the one hand you have indie movies that are obsessed with the identity of filmmakers, and on the other hand you've got you've got blockbusters that are sequels, you really don't have filmmaking anymore yeah. anywhere. Have you seen Napoleon? Um, I have not not yet. I will see it, but uh, you know, they announced that there's a four-hour cut so right. I thought, well why don't i just wait for that yeah <laughs> i i stayed away because i i from the reviews i read i kind of got kingdom of, kingdom of heaven vibes from it yeah i kind of um and i feel like i don't know i don't know i love you know it's it's very rare for me to not enjoy watching something ridley did usually whatever the level that tune in on is going to be exciting uh, on some level, but I also don't expect to ever see a film that's gonna bowl me over ever, you know, because I think since the days of Blade Runner and Alien, um, 
there's been a lot of Ridley negotiating the the Hollywood life, you know. And I, I Napoleon is not a subject I'm interested in from that perspective. Like I, I don't care about the guy. If if I approach Napoleon, that's not the kind of movie I would make. I'd be interested in the years preceding his um, becoming an emperor. I'd be interested in seeing how this guy managed to usurp the French Revolution, and and turn it on its head, and betray it and make it in make France an empire. Um, what kind of guy was he to really be that cunning? That's what that's the film I'd make. I'm much more interested in that. Like I said, uh, I stayed away because I, I sort of got Kingdom of of Heaven vibes uh, uh, from it. So I uh, I figured if there's going to be a longer version, which uh, which has uh, been well reported, that uh, I certainly enjoyed the, the the more complete version of of Kingdom of Heaven with his uh, historical epics. But uh, yeah, I have a different take on it. My my take is that. However long a film is, I kind of believe in the um, the words "the end." I think one of the things I enjoy about filmmaking is the the finite the finite quality of telling a story, cutting whatever you need to cut out of it to fit the requirement, and then say, "Okay, this is our film." Whatever it is, this is our film, and and I think I'm always a bit. Um, apprehensive when somebody says well here's a film but you know we have another version of it and and uh forget about the the version you paid and saw because we we really have like a another version and it's much better um i'm not convinced that it's much better you know that usually for me it kind of um i smell a rat when, some, when somebody tells me there's many versions yeah yeah now it's uh it's it's been a uh, it's been a year of uh, another year of of stops and starts with all the uh, first we come out of COVID and then we uh, straight out of the frying pan into the fire with the strikes and um, it's been uh, it's been a, a different sort of uh, a different sort of wasteland this year in Hollywood. But what I found interesting about the strike is I got the sense that nobody gave a shit whether or not um, people went back to work. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, sure, strike, whatever. <laughs> it didn't. I yeah. think part of the part part of this attitude is born out of um, a boredom with the kinds of movies that are being made, which was your point. Mm. I don't particularly profess to be uh, any sort of a savior or to be able to make a, a great film or anything like that. But I think the intention of uh, following one's own obsession is always bound to lead to something more interesting than the obsession to please. Yes. I've always felt like filmmakers should be leaders, any artist. The artist shouldn't be reading, mm. uh, you know, a request sheet from an audience saying, well, what do you want me to do next? Which is basically what Hollywood's doing. Mm. And what a lot of filmmakers are doing. And I think audiences, at least the kind of audiences from an era that I come from where movies had incredible charm, is movies decided where, where we were going. You know, I just showed up with my money. I paid my whatever it was at the time, you know, a couple of bucks and went into the theater. And the artists, the, the people behind the camera took me wherever the hell they wanted. And that's what I liked. I like filmmakers with convictions 
I like people who say, stop everything. I've got a story for you. It's different from anything you know and expect. Let me take you there. It's different. Mm. And, and the joy of that for me is what's been missing from films. Yes. And it is my mission to do this with the work I'm doing. I just, I just, um, I think that's what we're here for. Yeah. You know, anybody who has a point of view on something should be telling, should be the person telling the stories. Mm. Um, yeah. Otherwise, and, and it stops it. How do, how do we expect to get out of our own heads? You know. Yeah, and it it stops it stops the film from becoming um, something that's simply a generic. You know, I mean, I, I find a lot of uh, independent filmmakers I talk to, the, the biggest catchphrase among them is that they, they've they been conditioned to say, well, I, I make the films that the distributors want. Sure. Right? Now, that's... And look, I, I understand. I mean... I mean, that's... I understand that, that the pain of making independent work mm. after a while is too much. You know, there was uh, Darren Aronofsky mm. said something about um, when he finished the film Black Swan, I think. Mm. I mean, Black Swan, by all metrics, seems like a commercial film, but he, he seemed to imply that it was a very difficult film to make um, with enormous money problems. Mm. And um, he said, you know, I just want to do a blockbuster after this. I don't, I don't want to live through another three or four years of this. Mm. And I understand that. I'm in it. I'm in those three, four years. Yes. Um, I, I understand why if somebody comes in with a check and says, come do a studio film, the yes. temptation must be enormous. Mm. Um, actually, it's easier today to not be tempted because I can't possibly imagine any studio film that would have any appeal to somebody like me. But about 10, 15 years ago, I could still see how somebody could come up with something, mm. you know. Um, the devil always finds a way to tempt you. And, yeah. and Don't and worry. Don't worry. We know how to market this for you. Well, they they certainly know how to push your buttons and... and yeah make you understand how if you do what they say your life will improve yes. you know in in x amount of ways <laughs> it depends how afraid you are of suffering ultimately yeah. i mean if i'm willing to go back into the night then i can do another one that's that's gonna tear me apart it know? was it was like uh, spalding gray in that uh his monologue monster in a box and he goes to the hollywood meeting and he say are you one of those artists that are afraid to make money <laughs> <laughs> well what's disingenuous about this is i don't think anybody's afraid of making money i think what people are afraid of is it's kind of like um, accepting a loan from the mafia you know Hollywood is the mafia, and if they hand you money, man, they intend to own you. Um, it doesn't work any other way. Now, I don't know this from experience because nobody's ever handed me a Hollywood check. Not, mm. not that kind of money. In Hollywood, nobody cares about you know storyboard artists, and that's all I've been there. So wow. I'm invisible, and I like it because I have this freedom. I've always, you know, this whole time that I'm making this film, The Desert Years, mm. the, the Brand X film, I've been fully aware that this is probably the only time in my life that it will be um, as free and as gratified mm. by the act of making a film. 
because I'm in this transition period where never again, most likely, will I have a chance to do this, either because it'll be a total failure and I'll never have the strength or the energy to make another film, or or because it will be successful enough that I'll be able to make another film, but I won't have that kind of freedom. Right. You know? Uh, freedom is is incredible. What a luxury. What a luxury to say, you know what, I think I'm going to go there and film that now and have nobody who's just, you know, hovering saying, no, you don't. Mm. And if I can afford it, I can do it. If I can think of it, if I can wait three months, I'll have the money and I will go and film it. And that's yes. it. Mm. Um, imagine that. What, as, what luxury is that, you know? Yeah, Stanley Kubrick was, was uh, quoted to say that the greatest, uh, one of the greatest luxuries in filmmaking is time and not... Uh, not That's what I'm discovering. Mm, time, not, is, time is terrifying, but it's my ally. Because I was able to film all the segments I needed with the guitarist who passed away, mm. with the keyboard guy, Robin Lumley, who passed away earlier this year, mm. because I was able to do so much ahead of their passing, Yes. Um, time did not hurt the film in that sense. I captured everything I needed with them. And what's amazing is, as scary as it is for me to say, well, when is this going to be finished? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much money I'll have in the next couple of months to just go to the next stage. If, if I get a call from Eric Clapton and he says, all right, let's do the interview, mm. I don't know if I'll have the money to actually go to go to the UK, gather the crew, and and do the interview at the time that he says. I don't know. I hope I do, mm. but um, the aside from the terror that comes with this, there's the infinite joy of knowing that that um, the film is mostly in the can, so it's happening. It's it's mm. it's far past the point of no return. Yes. And every time I go out and film something, I'm, I'm in a state of ecstasy. You know, it's absolutely lovely. Yeah. So time, and time is, what, is what's made these ideas grow. So, so, in, so in an essence, you could say that you've, you've come all the way around through your career and, and essentially rediscovered the, uh, the joy, as it were, that, that maybe got you into this business in the first place. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm discovering the joys of what it was like to be 12 years old with mm. my first movie camera and and discovering how to make a film yes um because it's it's completely exhilarating everything is bigger than you everything you do is something you don't know so you're right. you're in a large room and there's all this blank space around you yeah that's what it feels like every day a bit like uh, a bit like that right. uh, a bit like uh richard attenborough's film about uh, charlie chaplin and he walks into the the old soundstage when yeah, it was yeah. just like a, a barn, essentially. Right, right. You know, and and you see him looking at it, but he's not just looking at the room. You see that he's looking at the blank canvas. Now, what can yeah. I fill this? Well, exactly. And, and it is blank canvas exactly in the sense that as long as you can stand here like a dwarf and say, I have no idea how to, how to make this work, how to fix this. But I intend to do it. Um, man, it's just, it's fresh. It really is a great, an absolute sense of freedom. Um, and again, I realized I couldn't have done it at a different time in my life because the ability to just conjure the money mm. to be able to show up somewhere with a crew 
and and a day ahead of me and saying, okay, here's here's the chart for today. Here's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, we need to go through these numbers. We need to record this, that, and that instrument, and mm. et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think there was ever a time in my life where I had the ability to, to conjure up that kind of energy, yeah. money, time, freedom to, um, to make this work. I mean, I could have done it, but if I'd tried to make this film 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been a quarter or, or a tenth of the film that it's going to be. I just didn't have the knowledge or the means to yeah. to bring it together. No, it's 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 an interesting concept that I was reading about it the other day um, about how happiness is 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 a is an, an emotion reliant on other things, and yeah. I, I've watched a lot of documentaries about filmmakers and uh, seems to be the older they get, and if you listen to them talk, like as as their career winds, once they get past their prime and they're into the last like ten films, uh, they tend to have a more, uh, they tend to have a uh, a slightly bitter outlook, and they come out with like Brian De Palma was in the film about Brian De Palma when he made I think it was Mission to Mars, and he finished that film and he says, you know, why am I doing this? You know, right. why am I doing well, this? Why am I? You feel it with older directors. Yeah. you feel that they. It's, it, they're treading familiar ground, yeah. and you can feel that they're, the sense of awe perhaps isn't as great as it used to be. Yeah. And I think that comes with panic. I mean, I know enough about the creative process to know that mm. when you're in a state of total panic, whether it's panic, financial panic, or panic that you have no idea what you're doing, yeah. or that you may fail, mm. the sense that there's a, a, a terrifying animal, a T-Rex, running behind you, um, that's when you do your greatest work. Mm. There's absolutely no question, because everything is uncertain. Yeah. Um, this is the the element that that um, Hollywood studios and producers everywhere are trying to remove. They're trying to remove the uncertainty element out of filmmaking, and unfortunately for them, the uncertainty element is the only thing that creativity can arise from. Yes, I mean that's the goose that lays the golden eggs. It's it's mm. the terror of it's, not knowing what's coming. It's with it's like the eyes. line. It's like the line in Shakespeare and Love, where you know he says, uh, "And how does it all how does it all work out?" And he says, "I don't know. It's a mystery." Yeah, it, it's a mystery. But when you're in the burning center of it, I mean, it's your life on the line. It's like you're mm. running across a bridge that's like crumbling behind you. Yeah, that's what it's like to create, and and it's in that state. And I think seasoned artists and filmmakers walk on solid bridges after a while yes and you feel it in the work you yeah. know, no matter how good they are i think the possibility the infinite possibilities become finite yes and and um the only way to suppress that is to accept suffering yeah. which many of them don't want to do yeah. many of them don't want to put themselves in a position where they're they're not sure that they have enough money to finish the film. Yeah. Well, the the the, the big the big uh, the big game boys in Hollywood. I mean, they're they're traveling across sealed, well constructed bridges where independents like yourself are taking the bridge in uh, sorcerer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what. <laughs> that's exactly where I am right now. I'm I'm about midway through the bridge, and there's a big tree that's slamming yeah. and, and poking at me. Um, My God, that's a good yeah, move. Yeah, I, I feel that way. I feel that way, and and I think again, Sorcerer, which incidentally is quite possibly my favorite film mm. um, of all the films I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them. 
Um, Sorcerer is the film that one of the films that I most relate to. Yeah, I, um, I I love it in its despair. I love it until the very end. Mm. Um, I was lucky enough to get to know um, William Friedkin a little bit. Oh wow! I, I talked to him extensively about this wow. because, of course, it's a movie I love. And so one of the things that um, I needed to know about um, was the dance um, with that woman at yes. the very end. Yes. Roy Scheider, yes. who, who is a beautiful expression of, of the, the horror that he has lived through. I mean, yeah. his, his face is just so emptied of hope at the end. Mm. Um, mm. The guy hands him a check and he says something like, uh, this, this is no good to me. You know, I can't walk into a bank for this thing. Yeah. And it the, the way he says it, I mean, it's just so pure. It's such transparent acting. It's just so absolutely pure. Yeah. Um, I, I love who Roy Scheider is at the end of that film. Yeah. So Friedkin was explaining to me the whole role of the hats in the film. He says, you know, if you watch the beginning of the movie, he's wearing this stingy brim hat, which is made uh, by this hat maker. He's, he's this Irish uh, hoodlum in the beginning of the film and there's this accident um, yeah. after the whole thing goes tits up and, and he um, he flees you know he meets this guy on the docks who says you're off you're on the hit parade get yeah. lost blah 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 so now he's in um, South America and he's wearing a hat which looks similar but isn't the same hat and the hat becomes the representation of the personality of Scheider. Mm. Um, so it is still a stingy brim, but now this one is completely worn. It's more like, a, you know, it's, it's very organic and starts to melt under the rain later on in the film. The first hat was kind of like a brown top colored yeah. hat. Right, right. And this one is black with a green band. And as he goes to the jungle, the hat just deteriorates more and more. And that's his inner state oh, until okay. the, the guy... The guys who stick him up takes huh. the hat from him. Yeah. And at the very end, Scheider is dressed in white and he wears a white Panama hat. Yeah. And that's death. Right. Okay. Uh -huh. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So, um, but it's transcendence. I'll have to watch it again now. It's not just death. It's, it's really transcendence. Yeah. And so he has three stages with his hat. In right. the, film, the personality of his hat, huh. which I thought was fascinating. And then uh, there's that story about the dance. And I said, how did you ever find a woman like that? And yeah. he said, oh, she was really there. <laughs> she was she was really cleaning the place. Wow. And he said, I just put her in a film because she just looked beautiful. That's and incredible. she does. She she does. She incarnates everything that a man would feel at that time and, and place when he says, may I have this dance? Wow. You know, so she's a local, and and he just picked her up and and put in a film. Who makes films like that anymore? Yeah, that must have been uh, incredible. I mean, Billy Friedkin, hey, wow. Yeah, I've I've, I've only ever seen him um, in interviews. I have to confess, I um, when he when he passed, I I got out my copy of uh, uh, Friedkin Uncut. I love how it ends. Um, yeah, if you've seen the documentary. Yes, I have. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he's uh, was he was he like that in real life genuinely just you know no. i found him to be very very nice very, i mean he, he had a public persona uh, when he spoke on stage which was oh, okay. kind of right. brash and funny and in your face you know right. but i found he was he was certainly 
on a one-to-one, I found him very soft-spoken and, and intelligent in his um, right. So that and, and so some of that was answers. some of that was a bit of an act. Well, I think he he had a great showman showman right, personality, right, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think he. But I mean, I he didn't, I you know. I didn't get too deep with him, but I did ask him a lot of questions because yeah, he was yeah. um, involved in a lot of cultural tidbits that concerned me. So they were my questions about sorcerer. Yes, obviously. Um, I was curious about that advert, that Coca-Cola advert. Right, right, right. I wanted to know how carefully scripted that was. Right. It turns out it was extremely scripted. I it was an idea that that took a lot of preparation actually right. to get that um, that particular laminated coca-cola poster to do that back and forth mm. i don't know if you remember the scene but roy scheider when he gets to that village one of the very first thing he's doing he's slumped over in a bar yes it's yes. that image yes. that bob dylan copied in that supposed original painting that he did right yeah. i don't know if you've seen this on the yeah. internet bob dylan nicked that whole image um so roy scheider is slumped over in the bar and he's he's looking at um he, his head just kind of looks up to that enamel image from the 50s of a coca-cola girl lying on her stomach and his eyes just crawl up her legs to her buttocks and you can sort of feel the, the memory of mm. what life used to be like you know and he crawls up to her face and finally lands on the coca-cola bottle because in the end it seems like that's, that's what he misses the most <laughs> and i love i love that that yeah. silent storytelling you know that to me is great writing yeah. um it's but, great. But, um, the other thing with, with Friedkin that I was interested in was the bit involving Peter Gabriel and Genesis and the mm. Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Because I'd read that while they were recording Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, Genesis were interrupted by a phone call Peter Gabriel got from Billy Friedkin, who'd read some little story that Peter Gabriel wrote. And he found that it was so novel and inspiring he wanted to hire peter gabriel to brainstorm ideas with him yes and so peter gabriel immediately um, excited by the idea of going to hollywood to work with the exorcist director dumped the group they were recording wow he left he left the the farm where they were this kind of big barn where right, right, right. zeppelin had recorded he just left and flew to la and came to freakin's door and Friedkin said, what are you doing? And Peter Gabriel said, well, I'm here. You said you wanted to work together. And he said, well, what about your band? So he said, oh, I'm thinking of leaving him. <laughs> so Friedkin said, get out of here. I don't want to be responsible for breaking up a band. And he threw him out. <laughs> oh, gee so Peter Gabriel returned with his tail between his legs to uh, England wow. and finished recording the album. You might have to write another book, mate. Well, I, it was a fascinating story. I'd heard bits of it, but yeah. uh, Friedkin confirmed it. And he said, look, man, I I didn't want to be responsible for breaking up that band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like they say, they don't make uh, they don't make films like that. And they don't make filmmakers like that. Uh, no, they don't. Too much. They don't. But I think it's a choice. You know, it's it's a difficult choice. I think the the bottom line is, um, it also all has to do with pain. How willing are we to endure pain? Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds dramatic, but what is pain? Pain is not knowing what your next meal comes from. Seriously, yes. 
And this is something artists deal with all the time. Now, when you're spending um, $160,000, $170,000, which is about what I've spent so far on a film, yes. um, there's a lot you could be doing with that. You know, I could have bought a house, as somebody pointed out to me recently. Yes. Um, I, I could have bought a lot of interesting, fancy things. And the problem is when you put all that on the screen, these are things that you don't have, you know. Your next month's rent may not be paid. Mm. And this could go on and on and on. And your life can really, really turn to shit. And the question is, how many more years of your life are you willing to do this to make these films that you want to make? Mm. So that's what pain is, practically speaking. So I can understand why um, when you start driving around in limos and, and dressing in nice suits and, you know, mm. marry the prettiest girl in the room and what, all this stuff... Um, I can understand why the the desire to go back to this thing, mm. um, you know, isn't all that great. Yeah, that's where the test is. I think the test is is um, I mean, when you have a chance to leave it all behind. Are you still willing to go back to it and, and mm. make and confront pain? Yes. So you can do what you want. You know. And remember what John Milius said. You know, pain is temporary. Cinema is forever. Well, I think that's what drives all the artists, all the creators who stick with it, yes. is they work for something greater than themselves, I think. Mm. Or, or like you say, a desire to be part of that which, which brought them joy. Yeah. And also, you know, the old Campbell things, following your bliss. Mm. You know, if I, if I monitor my feelings, um, those 60-some days that I've spent fully immersed in filming this this project yeah um have to have been the most gratifying of my life without a doubt yes it it beats hands down anything else i've ever done yeah. so if that's any indication um you know what i'd like to do is be able to have more of those days and less of all the stuff in between yes yes well i'm who's mate that lucky I, who, who's that lucky I certainly, I'm certainly very much looking forward to, um, I've loved, I loved, uh, all of your, uh, the work you've done on, uh, paper with, uh, all manner of mediums. And I'm certainly, I, I'm a great fan of, of music documentaries and, and stories of musicians. So, uh, you can count me as one of the faithful that will certainly show up on, uh, on whatever day, uh, she hits uh, local well, screens. I hope I hope we can do... Actually, I've kind of promised that we were going to do a screening in Australia. Okay. Um, because I don't know where exactly, but um, the wife, the, the surviving widow of Robin Lumley, who passed away in March of this year, uh, we had a ceremony not long ago where his ashes were spread um, in Dartmoor. And um, his his wife lives in Australia. Okay. And we were talking about um, the amount of friends in music that are over there. And I, I did say, you know, we'll do a screening there, definitely. So it's hard to say how the film would be distributed. I have no idea because yes. it's going to depend a lot on um, whether or not I have clinched uh, a substantial distribution when I, when I put it into festivals yes. or if I have to wait until the festival circuit is kind of decided its fate yes but um I, I will do yeah i'd love to you know i hope i'll get to tour around and that would be great film, sure. sure 
That'd be great. You probably, unfortunately, probably it won't screen out where I live, so I'll probably have to make the trek somewhere. And uh, well, you never know. You never know. You know. Today, because we're all digital, yeah, we can carry a file very easily. Sure, and, uh, sure. And and go organize screenings much more easily than it used to be. You know. Oh, sure. You, you no longer have to ship reels and all that sort of thing. Well, so. well, look, mate. If you end up coming to Queensland with the film, we can. I can certainly accommodate you by meeting up and buying you a beer. I, I think I will. Let's let's just decide right here and right now that we will do that. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm my, my, my friend my friend Christopher Moriarty also lives in Queensland. Yeah. So, so I mean if you're if you're interested in, in going off the the beaten tourist track and coming out to the real Australia where people still eat Vegemite and uh, and are attacked by every dangerous creature known to man. I love it already. <laughs> it's a bit like Hollywood, but uh, they yeah. They have more. I was just gonna say that's you know for old timers like yeah. me. It's, uh, you might feel right at home, except the people that try to kill you here have more than two legs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I, I've, I'd love to come to Australia. Be fantastic, love it. Brent. Make sure you bring your guitar, and you can um, you can serenade us at the table over a forex. Um, yeah. It's the beer here in the southern state. It's a deal. <laughs> but Sylvan, mate, it's always great to talk about movies with you, uh, to share the joy of cinema with you. Um, we always seem to be uh, on the same page and like the same movies. So it makes uh, for a great conversation. And like I said, I'm, uh, I'm one of the faithful and I can't wait to see... Um, what you what your cinematic visions are like i've seen your conceptual visions drawings all that sort of thing so uh, i am count me among the faithful and one of the eagerly anticipating audience for uh for well, brand I, X. I appreciate the uh i appreciate the the chance to kind of uh talk about it as it is um yet unfinished which is always an interesting point you're catching me at the point where i've wrapped cinematography so I can now talk about everything that's going to be in the film. I know what it is. You know, I can. I, I feel a lot calmer than I was a couple of years ago. Yes, um, you've crossed over that bridge. Big, but there's still a, a. You know, the most important part of a documentary, arguably, is the editing, yeah. and um, because that's where the film really comes together. So it's still. I'm working on it now, but it's still a ways away. So it's interesting to be able to kind of. Uh, to, to kind of tune in and explain what this project is because it's a I've got a pretty clear idea now yeah. Um, but yeah I, I uh, look forward to being able to show it that's the next big stage you know we look forward we look forward to seeing it mate and uh, and as I look forward to uh, to talking with you again and and yeah if you make it uh, if you make it here down under there's a cold one with your name written all over it and uh okay it's a deal it'll be a pleasure but uh yes thank you for very very much thank my guest sylvain dupree for being on cinema yugen uh his film uh brand x or sorry the desert years brand x is that the it's, it's brand x the desert years yeah it's brand x colon the desert years we might we might it might get modified a little bit i mean I the, de the desert years is a good title I mean, I know you. I like the desert years, but I think it's important to mention Brand X because yeah. it it's the name of the band. You know, it's kind of like making a film about the Rolling Stones without mentioning their name. Oh yeah, it would yeah. Be a little bit yeah. odd. But, but I mean, that's as, a good. As thing. I was showing it to my my producing 
partner, um, she pointed out, and she's really not from my generation, so she's interesting. She doesn't have a particular interest in any of the music. She's looking at it very cold. And she said, you should really um, put forward the fact that this is an experience. It's not just, it's not a documentary. It's really the Brand X experience. Yes. And, and so I think she may have a point, and I might work that into the title at some point. But I mean, you, you definitely have the capacity with this film, like uh, you mentioned Searching for Sugarman earlier, which really introduced his music to people who had no clue who he was. So absolutely, you have, you have an opportunity to introduce this band to the, quite a number of people, millions. Absolutely. Uh, and that's invariably what happens when you make a film, is you, you sort of write another chapter in the history of the band, which is the echo yeah. that, that they may create. This is why I'm attracted to uh, films about things that are not popular. You know, yeah. I always, if I'm going to see a documentary, I'd much rather see a documentary about an unknown. Yeah. Um, who cares about things everybody knows, you know? But I have, I have to admit, one sequel I am looking forward to is the, the Spinal Tap sequel. Ah. <laughs> I, hope they, I hope they call it, I hope they call it The Final Tap. Well, maybe they will. The, the, the thing that matters is, is it going to be any good? That's what we hope. Yeah. Well, you know, the element of surprise is, is really the... Because if, uh, if, if it's going to be the Spinal Tap version of The Last Waltz, that sounds pretty good to me. I would hope it is, but I, I would find it surprising if the, the beauty of the first Spinal Tap could be um, recreated on command, you know. I, I hope they get the, they hope they get the Stonehenge monument the right size this time. You know that, um, speaking of Spinal Tap, the guitarist from Brand X, who drove a cab, yeah. he is, uh, he's also an extra in Spinal Tap, and he, um, he appears in the crowds during the concerts, because um, one, one of the band members was a friend of his back from the UK, and, and dragged him out for some of the scenes. Right. So there you go. Huh. Well, Sylvan, mate, it's 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 always been it's always great. It's fantastic to talk with you. I cannot wait for the Desert Years, uh, Brand X. Anyone uh, listening uh, across Australia, uh, the rest of the world, listening to us on Spotify or wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts, uh, the great man Sylvan Dupree has been my guest. Sylvan, thank you again. The Desert Years, Brand X is is in post-production he's made it over that bridge in sorcerer as far as production is concerned and he's now into the uh, now into the home stretch of uh, of post-production and uh, the world waits with glorious anticipation I, I, i'm gonna i'm gonna pray that i meet a better end than roy yeah the world waits with great anticipation for uh, a film by are you gonna pay is it a sylvan dupree picture or a film i don't know i don't i don't are you going to go with the Martin Scorsese <laughs> adage? A picture. No, I'm, I'm going to go with the, um, you know, the, the Brand X is the centerpiece. Okay. That's Take it. care. <laughs>